Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy and I'm joined by another special guest today. This time it is Holly Fry, my fellow editor. Woo! And uh, you host your own podcast too called Pop Stuff. Right! And I get to be lucky and hang out with you today. Yeah. So normally you're talking about TV and movies and other pop culture kind of stuff. But Holly is also a talented seamstress. You design clothes. You sew everything from wedding dresses to uh, Dragon Con costumes to running wear that's appropriate for Disney marathons. Yeah. So Fashion is a passion for you, It right? is indeed. <laughs> it is indeed. And historical clothing in particular is very near and dear to my heart. And I really like historical clothing, too. So Who doesn't? I was really psyched when, um, when I asked Holly if she wanted to be on the show. And the first thing you suggested was that we talk about underwear. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be the topic for today. We're going to talk about everything from the history of the undershirt to bloomers and corsets. I know it is now October, and so y'all are probably expecting some Halloween stuff. We'll get to that eventually. Not today. <laughs> some of this will be scary. <laughs> <laughs> no, at least, though, Holly is wearing a skeleton shirt today. So, I am. So she is... Halloween in spirit and also it's going to help me it's going to help me visualize any conversations we have about corsets and tight waist lacing. restriction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could get some some pretty tight lacing if that were actually your torso. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not. I have plenty of fluff right over it. So. So, I don't know where do you want to where do you want to start with this? I mean, I was kind of thinking one of the first personal emails I ever sent you, not just a work-related one, was about Queen Victoria's Underpants. Yeah. And then you didn't know you were going to get me on my soapbox. I just knew this lady likes costumes. She <laughs> likes history. I wasn't expecting the full blast of Victoria underwear passion. Yeah. Well, and I will say to set it up that I'm also just a big fan of Queen Victoria. Like, I'm a dork and I have her picture in my cube. I carry a picture <laughs> with me at all times. I just have great admiration for her um, because she was imperfect. You know what I mean? She is lauded as such an important um, monarch, but she made a lot of missteps, and that kind of endears her to me. The thing that really got me was this article that you had pointed out about her bloomers, which had been, um, it was actually like four years ago that they were discovered, but it only recently really picked up steam in terms of coverage in the news. Because they went up for sale just last year. Right. And the thing that got me is the article in question talked about how it was evidence of how heavy she had gotten in her later life. And she did put on weight. She was like a million years old at that point. Um, but what, what frustrated me is that they um, they claimed that she had a 50-inch waist, 5-0, <laughs> uh, based on these bloomers. And th- that's not how bloomers worked. Like, they were they, imagining they were tight. Right. You would, you would they fill were filled them up out entirely. But in fact, bloomers were worn cinched a great deal. You needed a lot of fabric involved. To make them bloom. Well, part of, it, part of it, and we're going to get a little real for a minute, um, has to do with their actual function, which is to protect your clothing from your body oils and 
other general, you know, human dirt. You're very rich, expensive, <laughs> queen's clothing. Right. Um, and if for anyone who has ever worn Victorian style bloomers, it's eye opening the first time because um, there is a lot of fabric there. And you realize, and we'll come back a little bit to the split crotch, which <laughs> they had. There's no way to delicately put that. But so that um, large amount of fabric kind of fills in so that even though there's a split there, there, you're usually not exposed. If you're standing up in the bloomers, you wouldn't see anything mm-hmm. because the fabric kind of gathers around and makes a, a wall, a protective wall between you and your clothes. Um, so they sort of seem to make the assumption, as you said, that it would be filled out and there would not be a cinched drawstring involved. And I remember you telling me that a year ago, and I looked at so many articles leading up to this episode, and almost all of them did assume that she had a 50-inch waist, and I saw a lot of things talking about her ascension dress that she would have worn when she was 18, and she had um, a 22-inch waist. Yeah. Because, you know, it's a very fitted dress. Yeah. And saying she went from 22 inches to 50. <laughs> she did fill out, and there are some rumors that say she was morbidly obese, and you can even find some... Um, um, kind of gossipy writings of the time that alleged that she was up to 60 inches. But I mean, if you do the math on that, and we've seen <laughs> pictures woman of too, like her I mean, very small. Yeah, she was short. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was like five feet tall. So she would have been bigger around at that point than tall. And if you see pictures of like her jubilee towards, you know, the end of her life, she was stout, but she was not 60 inches of waist. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I thought this was like a good place for, for us to start this discussion, too, because it does show how many misconceptions there are about oh, yeah. historical undergarments yep. and how much there is that um, that we don't know, that the average person doesn't know. But even researchers, people who get into all of this, because yeah. it's not the it's not necessarily the beautiful clothing that you keep, you put away, you preserve. Yeah a lot of what we have has kind of come to us by chance almost. And we'll talk more about that later, a a really cool recent find that came completely by chance. But we're just going to go over a few of the basic underwear types today. And I don't know, what do you think is a good one to start on? Maybe the shirt? Sure. Since that's a basic one and it's kind Kind of of been around forever. (laughs) I mean, there are loincloths that are, um, you know, documented in very early history. But there have been times when something covering from the waist down in like a pant or underpant type fashion has fallen out of favor and back in and back out and back in. But there's almost always been an undershirt mm-hmm. that was often quite long. And it's some, in some eras, it served the purposes of both. And we should say, too, I mean, I'm, I'm interpreting a real undergarment, a real undershirt is something that is a, a thin type of material. It's not what you're necessarily going to be wearing under a cloak or other layers of clothing. It might right. show some, but it's primarily for keeping under your other clothes, to keep you clean, to keep them clean, right. um, to provide warmth, all those things that people still use undergarments for today. And they were generally very, very lightweight fabrics, you know, the finest anyone could afford at the time, uh, because most of the time there was a lot of layered dressing involved, and you want to minimize the bulk as your layers Cold build times, out. no central heat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. um, It's interesting that you mentioned them showing or not. I'm going to diverge for a brief second. Do you know about the big controversy with Marie Antoinette's wedding gown? No, I don't. Oh. um, So in that era, completely not okay for any of the undergarments to show. 
And when she showed up for her wedding in France, of course, anyone who watched the movie, um, <laughs> or if you've done any reading, it actually did take place, though, where she crossed the border from Austria to France. She had to take off everything she owned yes. and leave it and then go into France as a true air, Total French. air quotes French princess. Mm-hmm. And um, and at that point, she was considered a princess because, as many people know, if you're a history buff, she had already had a mock wedding with her brother as a stand-in for Louis Auguste so that she was technically Common a princess of France. For, for right. royals where they send off their daughters. But somewhere along the line, the measurements got messed up for her or there was an error on the dressmakers, plural, because there were many involved parts. And her wedding dress was too small. Uh-oh. And her chemise was showing. And it was very scandalous. And it was one of those things that kind of kicked off the early stages of rumblings of distrust for her. Even though, you know, her popularity waxed and waned a little bit before it eventually really exploded into bad press everywhere. Mm-hmm. That was very early on, like a big scandal that one, they're showing. Two, she's acting like it's not even happening. <laughs> <laughs> Poor, like, 14-year-old girl. I know. <laughs> I know, just thrust into this world of scandal. Well, that's really interesting to hear, too, because we think of Marie Antoinette as such a trendsetter, too, mm-hmm. later on, Yeah, um, that she started off her public career, essentially, on the such huge a Huge fashion foot. gaffe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, through through different times, sometimes having that undergarment, having the little sleeves or the, mm-hmm. the neck peek out was something that was okay. Yeah. Um, so how did the shirt then shrink up to a shirt length, if we're thinking of it more as a tunic sort of thing almost, or a chemise? Well, I mean, even when you say chemise, I mean, right up through Victorian times, it was still full length, mm-hmm. even under a corset and with bloomers in some cases. There was also a, a thing where uh, called a combination. Do you know what that is? Yeah. It's a bloomer and chemise combo burrito, sort of. They, they <laughs> mesh them together into one garment. So it's almost like, in concept, it didn't look like this, but in concept it worked similarly to a union suit, where you okay. would step into it and button it down the front, and it looked like you were in like a little jumper. Okay. Um, and that was, again, to minimize bulk. But that's really the first time that it kind of shrunk up and became something else that I know of. And how about for men? What were what were they wearing after after men put tunics aside? <laughs> they started wearing pants or hose or whatever. What was happening with that long well, shirt? Even in um, and it, since we were just talking about Marie Antoinette, this is a great place to mention it because it was definitely happening then. Um, they had a long undershirt. That was serving as both their, you know, top coverage and their bottom coverage. Even though they were wearing it with pants, it was often down to knee length. Wow. And they would kind of fold it. The front was a little bit shorter than the back. And they would fold the front up between their legs towards the back and then pull the back forward and then pull their pants up. And it was acting as their underwear and their T-shirt or the equivalent of what we would use a t-shirt for yeah, today. That sounds um, like, like a it lot would, of bulk. It does sound like a lot of bulk. And I'm thinking uh, Holly and I were looking at some pictures earlier today of of um, clothes from what was about the 1830s. Yeah. When men wore very, very slim pants. Yeah. And I'm just imagining. It was not would... happening then. <laughs> okay. At all. At that point, they had moved to. Moved like, on to other types of undergarments. Yeah. Like a union suit. Okay. Um, which eventually kind of shrunk up to look almost like a wrestling suit. You have some shirt lines in that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, again, it's similar 
to what I was saying before about the way bloomers were cut with a lot of fabric. Like when you see normally a gentleman from, you know, the um, the mid 18th century, you almost always see them in a coat. Mm-hmm. There's a reason. <laughs> because there is a lot of fabric at the back of their pants. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. Um, if you watch any of the um, recent Pirates of the Caribbean movies, they actually really got this right because they have a really phenomenal costume designer. Whether you like the movies or not, it's a separate issue. Um, but when you see them without them, you see like the big baggy sack on the behind. Yeah. And that's part of it is that they were accommodating all that fabric. Huh. And also, you know, they it allowed them free to, freedom of movement because they could just kind of sit down and everything would just spread around to kind of fill the spaces. Well, freedom of movement is going to be sort of a unique thing in this episode. <laughs> uh, that's probably a good segue to corsets because sure. that is the exact opposite of freedom of movement. Although you were telling me earlier today that corsets can be kind of liberating in that you don't have to do anything. It is yeah. holding you upright. Yeah. Um, I, I thought about just being conscious of sitting up straight and how that takes so much effort. And and uh, this probably speaks to my posture, but eventually you start to get sort of tired even. Yeah. Um, but we're going to talk about sort of the more extreme, too, where <laughs> it, you're probably not thinking about how upright you feel. You're maybe thinking more, I can't breathe and I'm uncomfortable. It's well, not necessarily how it started, though. Well, and it's not how it was for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, a well-fitted corset doesn't do that. It doesn't <laughs> torture you. And I, I think that's one of those things that um, it, history has been done a bit of a disservice by uh, modern film because it's always portrayed as this, oh, I can't breathe. And it's like, mm. then Last it doesn't thing on the, you. on the fainting couch. And, or... and those things did happen. Yes. But those were like, the women that were doing that were almost like the equivalent of like the Paris Hiltons of our day. Like they were the, you know, breaking privileged your, fashionistas. Breaking your ankle in, in eight inch heels. Not everybody wears eight inch heels. Right. You might break your it's ankle like if you're, you do. You're making foolish safety f- sacrifices for fashion. <laughs> And that was the same thing that was happening then. Most people, most women were not walking around in a corset that reduced their waist by four inches. Yeah. They were wearing a corset that was fitted and would provide support to the bust line and smooth out the waist and provide a good foundation for the very heavy clothes. And I I think something that, that interests me, once you get beyond that idea that a corset was just to be laced as tightly as possible and make your waist as tiny as possible. Once you get beyond that, you can start really thinking about all of the shapes. And that's really the goal of, yeah. of the corset, to make your body, whatever shape it might be, into the ideal shape of the time, which Correct. is not always an hourglass shape, no. too. Victorian and, is hourglass, but their corsets preceding that were much more like conical, yeah, usually. Yeah, conical. Regency was very um, like a um, sin- cylinder, mm-hmm. where it was very up and down, which is kind of funny when you think about it, because Regency gowns, you know, they cut up under the bust. And then they were usually pretty loose from there, but mm-hmm. there was still often a corset going on underneath that. A lot of restriction right was below. keeping you very straight. And I think because we do associate the corset so much with that, um, with more like Victorian style gowns, yeah. it's hard to, to believe at first that there were types of corsets in ancient Greece even. Yeah. Um, not 
steel, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know. they were doing binding at that point to kind of smooth out their um, their silhouette. And and even beyond that, into Italian, medieval, Gothic style dresses. Oh yes. Um, not the really restricted corsets that we we tend to think of, but ones that would smooth you down enough for these very snug-fitting bodices that were were popular. But is it the Basque corset that's really the first one that's kind of an iconic corset style, what we might think of today? The the very restricted shape? Probably. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to be definitive because I'm like, I think so. But I always worry, having not looked for that specific question, that I will have missed something. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, that's really where it started to be more of like a full body, full containment, Mm -hmm. hard, you know, you're not really, your body has to do this. It has no other option if you're in it. Steel is involved suddenly. Yes. Hard hard materials. I think that one in in particular popped to me because Catherine de' Medici, who is a common subject on this show. <laughs> she was said to, um, you know, really popularize that kind of steel corset, very rigid yeah. style. Um, so I always like it when I can associate a name, yeah. you know, like you just did with the Marie Antoinette story, yeah. because it helps me think, oh, I know what that looks like now because I've seen pictures of these women. Exactly. And it's interesting um, if you think about, you know, art history, any portrait that you see um, from there, Elizabeth, there are a bazillion great portraits of. One of the keys to think about is the bodice is always perfectly rigid. Mm-hmm. Like when you see a painting of Queen Elizabeth, there is never a wrinkle in the bodice. And that's part of why this was going on, why corsets were getting a little bit more rigid and more sort of confining because they had to make that perfect cone shape for that nice sharp edge and then the pleasing folds of the skirt that would fall out underneath it. Um, that was the style. And the only way to get it was with a corset underneath it because without it, you just kind of looked like a lumpy mesh shoved you into your dress. You have a spine that moves and you create wrinkles in your dress. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, if you ever want to see an example of the problems that are created by not having undergarments, I think if you go to like a big convention or something. There are a lot of people now, even at things like Dragon Con and Comic Con, and especially with steampunk having gotten so popular in terms of making Victorian clothes more popular again. There are always people that are maybe a little newer to costuming and they don't realize they need the foundation garment. And you can tell. Like, mm-hmm. you go, oh, something's not right there. The outfit looks beautiful, but they're, they don't she have the right wrong. undergarment. And that's kind of a great... Yeah quick lesson for the eye, like visually, oh, I see what happens with and without. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's ever wondering, go troll around a convention and look for the people in historical clothes that forgot to make a corset to go with. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's it's cool, too, and I, I, I can appreciate that. You talked about the different silhouettes, but even thinking about silhouettes where a corset doesn't seem like an evident part of it. So sort of like the directoire style, you yeah. know, so post-French Revolution, dramatic change in clothes. Stop mm-hmm. thinking about Marie Antoinette. Start thinking about Empress Josephine or someone. Yeah. But there's still structural garments underneath there. It's not just a, a willy-nilly world. <laughs> Although Marie Antoinette was a, kind of a forebear of that She movement. was with her, her petit trionon. Yeah, her time at petit trionon was like, I don't want to do this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of scandalous things written about her, how she didn't wear a corset. And 
also asserting her sexual promiscuity as being evidenced by the fact that she didn't want to wear a corset at her private quarters. And, um, you know, it's a fascinating thing. But even so, there was always a chemise under there. And it's always something. Always. <laughs> always. Again, because they did not have modern washing machines. Those fabrics were expensive and very fine. Like even a lot of the time on a chemise that was very well appointed with beautiful trim, the trim was usually just basted into place and the servants would actually unstitch it from it so they could give the undergarment a good hard wash and then put that delicate lace back on without damaging it. Like oh, there was good. always stuff always had to get moved that's, around. That's good to hear, Holly. That makes me feel better <laughs> about the cleanliness of people in the past. Well, then you hear, you know, other tales of <laughs> gentlemen that would wear their same union suit all winter long and only take it off in the spring to well, wash. We've, it. we've done enough Arctic exploration <laughs> episodes. Yeah, to you know the drill on that. Have the full picture of wearing the union suit all winter. <laughs> But we've got to talk about the debate over corsets that starts, too, because we've sort of been covering the era where uh, the really extreme corseted figures might go in and out of style. But there's always something there. But eventually, in sort of the second half of the 19th century, when it starts to become something that people get really up in arms about, or even before that, even before that, for some, there are a lot of political cartoons from um colonial era uh, that are about women foolishly, you know, jostling themselves into the tiniest possible thing. There are some really funny ones with very robust sized women trying to get really thinned down and they have the big giant Marie Antoinette do on. Um, yeah, historical political cartoons are some funny, funny business. About fashion are, are really, really funny. I saw some uh a woman wearing a large crinoline mm-hmm. and criticizing her maid for looking like a fool for wearing yeah. a much smaller one. Yeah. All sorts of things like that. Little snarky old cartoons <laughs> are, are amusing. Yeah. So there were, I mean, there were people doing that even then um, that were tight lacing and being criticized for it. It's like, don't you know your place? Like, please stop trying to be something you're not. Um, and there were doctors going all the way back that were like, I don't think this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. But really, but getting really on to the turn of the century, yeah. health and hygiene reformers, clergy even, yeah. saying that this is not a good thing or this is a good thing, uh, feminists, of course. And um, part of this seems like just because corseting did get so extreme during this time with it the did. wasp waist, Gibson girl. Yeah, that's really like there was a transition from the hourglass mm-hmm. of Victorian era. And even with and without bustle, that hourglass kind of stayed in place for quite a long time. Um, if you look at corsets from, you know, early pre-Civil War part of the 1800s right up through the, you know, 1900, 1901, they have pretty much the same shape. There's some variation, but it's always the hourglass shape. But then something happened and it became more about thrusting the bust forward and the rear end back. And I think that's got so extreme that that's where the kind of debate over it really hit a fever pitch. Because it starts to look clearly like, These women bad are crazy. For you. <laughs> Uncomfortable and and like it might even have some long term. Yeah, I mean that was really um, there started to really be a commonality of women having health issues, cracking ribs. I mean, for your underwear, Bad stuff. that yeah. doesn't make any sense. Like, could you imagine? No. I mean, anyone in today's <laughs> society, like rib. any lady, you get up and you put on a bra and it cracks your ribs. Like, there's <laughs> that just doesn't happen. 
That that sounds it's yeah, bizarre to think about. Time for a new style if, <laughs> if that's happening. And I mean that that's that was a result. Style started to change and a more natural form started to yeah. to arise and that yeah. that started to become more popular. And yeah. um of course this really freaked out corset manufacturers. Yeah. What are we gonna do? We've been putting women in corsets for ever almost. Yeah. <laughs> what are we gonna do now? I read a really interesting article about the corset manufacturer's plight, yeah. which wasn't really actually as much of a plight as you might expect, um, in the Journal of Social History by Jill Fields. And um, she wrote that the corset saleswoman became really important. Mm-hmm. You needed to be a specialist. And, and you talked about this earlier, that people who, who say a corset is automatically uncomfortable, they're in the wrong one. Yeah. Um, so... That became an important aspect of it. You had to have the right fit. It wasn't just, here's your measurement, here's the waist you're going for. But also, it became something that wasn't just about style and dress. It became a discussion about science and modernity and even race in really kind of icky ways. and and just class and and things like that yeah. the uncorseted figure being slovenly yeah um but sometimes experts were even drawn into this discussion and the one that just really blew my mind was this guy Havelock Ellis who was cited by the corset manufacturers association as claiming that women had to be corseted because the evolution from a horizontal to vertical position had been so much harder on women. <laughs> and he, he even said, quote, the corset is morphologically essential. So this just made me think. So we, we should be falling out of yeah, our chairs. We're like boneless <laughs> bags of organs or something. That can be our segue to the Halloween discussion. But I, I just thought that was so strange that instead of seeing this clear potential for other forms of structural garments that you could sell, which is, of course, what they eventually came to that realization. Instead, you you would think, no, you really have to be in a corset or you'll just collapse into a wicked witch puddle or something. You're just sort of a pile. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, But, of course... You know, as styles changed, corset manufacturers did realize that there were other things they could sell. You could sell dance corsets. That's my favorite. Sport corsets. Sport corsets. Those you have are hilarious. Women playing organized sports at their women's colleges. Yeah. You have things like tennis and bicycling. You have tango parties. Yeah. And you can't wear that really rigid corset yeah. if you're in a tango or play tennis. Yeah. You need, you need a, a specialized corset. product. <laughs> Yeah, and and eventually, just the whole silhouette really changes too. Yeah. Um, in the in the teens, the debutante slouch that might be my favorite yeah. thing I learned in this episode. Just adopting this entirely new posture. Whereas, uh, you talk about Queen Elizabeth portraits of her. She's so upright. Yeah. And that had sort of been a, a standard yeah. for a very long time. The new posture being one where you thrust your abdomen out. To yeah. partly minimize your bust. And it was just, it must have been so strange looking. Now we're used to people with all different sorts of postures, good and bad. Yeah. It must have been so strange, though, in this time, especially with older women probably still maintaining a lot of the more traditional styles and yeah. postures. Oh, yeah. And especially, I mean, part of that is born of the fact that... Um, Textiles and designers' approaches to textiles started to change so much that they were starting to cut garments on the bias because 
it could be made so much faster thanks to the Industrial Revolution that they could play with how fabric draped a little bit more. And that's actually considered kind of a, um, I don't want to say wasteful, but that's the word that keeps coming to mind. It's almost a wasteful way to cut a garment. Um, normally you would cut along the grain, the warp mm-hmm. or weft of it, which are the perpendicular threads that run to one another. Uh, and then you started cutting along the diagonal between them, and it has this beautiful drape but you burn through fabric a lot faster. And so because, you know, prior to the big crash in 29, there was a lot of opulence and there was a lot of like, we can indulge ourselves with beautiful fabrics. (laughs) Let's cut it on the bias. (laughs) Um, And then corsets weren't working because they would show underneath that cut because it does cling to the body and it kind of drapes well, across you. Well, and if the you. beauty of it is the draping, I imagine you want The rigidity underneath was not look. working so well. I will not be shipping bloomers. No. I don't have any bloomers to ship anywhere well, at the Well, and moment. you would want to keep the bloomers for yourself, I, I just <laughs> imagine. Because I think of all of these um, underwear types we've discussed, bloomers might be sort of the most fun. Well, they're very personal. <laughs> They're, they're just, I mean, I'm imagining like baby bloomers, that sort of thing. We're going to get into more of the the details, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting very they're, real. They're not always the, the puffy, they're ruffly no. baby pants, I'm imagining. No. <laughs> I mean, they often were adorned with cute um, trim. But, you know, it's one of those interesting things. Um, if you've ever talked about the Moulin Rouge and Can Can Dancers, you know, people always talk about how they were a little loose uh, sexually because they would dance and show off their split underwear. Okay, everybody was wearing split underwear, and here is why. <laughs> Let me just take you for a walk down Learning Lane. You may not have wanted, but um, if you are wearing bloomers, which go under your corset okay. and a chemise, okay. and then your corset over it, there is no way to pull those bloomers down. Without undoing everything, taking off all your clothes, etc. Gotcha. So they were split um, almost all the way. That entire seam that runs, you know, from your belly button to the small of your back between your legs, your crotch seam, was almost open all the way in some cases. So almost two pant legs with a waist. Right, with a drawstring. Sometimes they weren't even joined. Um, a 50-inch waist. Uh, well, and again, <laughs> I'm going to go back to all of that fabric. Mm-hmm. Allows you, when you're in the outhouse... <laughs> to kind of pull those pant legs apart up around you, and then you could sit on the toilet and take care of business. So a practical practical It's completely practical. Yeah. If you could call that practical. By modern (laughs) standards, it seems woefully impractical. (laughs) But that was its its practical reason. That's why the underpants were split. They weren't split in an... So that they could show them while dancing. So you could can-can. They were just... (laughs) That was the only way to make it all work. And like live your life in a semi-normal way. It's kind of a disturbing note now to apply that to can-can dancer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully they were at least breaking out a pair of special bloomers just for the can-can. You know, I think it depends on where you are watching. Yikes. What which, kind of can-can joint it was. it was. Yeah, which shift. Probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> so bloomers, you want to move back on up to... The brazier. Yeah, although we should talk about the um, the bloomer trend that you found fascinating that we talked about a little before oh, we recorded. Yes, pantalets. The pantalets. They're fake. And I think this is maybe what I think is kind of cute. So I'm 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 identifying with the cute baby bloomers, and then the pantalets because they're just they're so strange. They're but not real so bloomers. Fun. Yeah. So 
they apparently appeared in fashion magazines as early as 1805, but didn't really catch on for a while. People must have just seen them because they do look, it's a bizarre look. You yeah. Know? Uh, and I, I can imagine women in 1805 with these radically new silhouettes already being like, okay, and now I'm supposed to wear pantalettes under these. <laughs> um, but they did eventually catch on, uh, although they finally became something that just little girls would wear. Yeah. But these are little pants that would peep out from under your dress. Uh-huh. So not the floor sweeping dresses anymore, ones that were about ankle length or yeah. so. So you would have pants, very pretty satin ones, ones with lace, peeping out from underneath. And what I find so bizarre <laughs> is that eventually it got to the point where you might not want to wear that, but you liked the look. Yeah. So you would wear false pantalettes. Yeah. Which were, I have to imagine, just leg warmer sort yeah, of Yeah, they're like from the knee down. With tapes attaching them up to <laughs> your, your waist, whatever other yeah. garments you have going on up there. Um, Holly and I were speaking earlier about dickies, you know, false front. Yeah for uh, false turtlenecks, yeah. false camisoles, things like that. Yeah. Um, basically a way to look like you're wearing an undershirt that you're not really wearing. And I can I can see that I've never worn one of those myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any false turtlenecks, but I can see the appeal yeah. for something like that. Yeah, you want a layered look you without the You want to stay on the mode. But, um, not mess with old stuff. I can't really get my mind around false pantalettes because it doesn't (laughs) seem like it would be any more convenient. It seems like having these weird tapes going over most of your legs and then leg warmers, things would get twisted and uncomfortable. We've we've already talked about the split bloomers and all the fabric there and how awkward that is, especially with the crinoline. It's just more fabric (laughs) and weirdness. Whereas it seems like. Just a pair, I'm imagining comfy PJ, loose pants that you wear under your dress. Seems so simple. Maybe we should bring it back. I double dog dare you. I'll do it if you do it. You know I'd do it. I Start walk right in here with it. I mean, can I, I wear leggings under See, under that's a dress. the thing. It's evolved to be more like that. Yeah, so that counts. All right, final topic yep. is um, this. If we weren't talking about this now, I think Dublina and I would be talking about it in our amazing 2012 discoveries in history, even yeah. though it's not technically a 2012 discovery. Because they had to date it and be very careful with their data. Yeah. So we are talking about the oldest bra in the world or what's believed to be the oldest bra. So um, previous assumptions up until now were that men wore these shirts that we've discussed. Uh, women wore a chemise, corset, whatever other sort of garments but there wasn't a a bra like what we think of as a bra and we should we should give some some detail to that because bandeau styles were also worn in ancient greece so we're not talking about a bra like that a bra has to be two distinct cups right to count not (laughs) not like an undershirt not like a camisole shirt Mm -hmm. but an actual structured garment with seaming that creates as you said the cups for each of your breasts. Exactly. That's so, so weird saying that on the air. <laughs> so in 2008, um, there was a very interesting discovery in East Tyrol, Austria, in Langberg Castle, which was 
built, I think they're guessing around 1190 or Mm -hmm. so, but the castle had been pretty extensively remodeled in the 15th century. And during some 2008 work, some 2008 renovations, this vault of trash was discovered. And I I love things like this because it gives you a peek at everyday life rather than the things that people have preserved for whatever reason. This is a vault of trash. It's filled with things like wood. The debris of life. Textile scraps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, all the stuff that nobody would have really cared about. Yeah. Um, But because of the conditions in this vault, all of it is really well preserved. So 2,700 textile fragments were found, according to the great Smithsonian yeah. blog, Threaded, which is lots of fun for fashion it is history. Really fun. Um, and among those fragments were four bras. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is fascinating because this, you know, the 15th century is one of those times when most costume historians are at best taking a wild stab at. at the layering that may or may not have been going on. Mm-hmm. We know their clothes were very tight, and a lot of people have just assumed along the way that just the tightness of the clothes was kind of covering all of the bases of keeping everything in place. Supported and because, and it, I mean, it went all the way down to the arms. Like, um, if you see any modern um, films or anything about that era, what people often remark is that the the bodices and the arms are all very form-fitted and tight, and like, mm-hmm. how would you move? Eh, not so much. Um, this kind of turns that whole concept on its head. It really does. And and there are different style bras, too. So it's like you got a little selection from the department store <laughs> almost. It's not just one cut. There are two that look kind of like this contraption that's occasionally referenced from this period called breast bags. Yeah, which and is kind of like a halter top by yeah. today's standards. So I was... I was talking to Holly about <laughs> breast bags and, and thinking that they sounded really awkward. I had a nickel for every time somebody <laughs> wanted to talk to me about that. And and you did say it's basically like a halter top. So yeah. two of them kind of like that. Apparently those could be used for various uh silhouettes that you were going for, whether to minimize or enhance. Right. I feel kind of weird saying that on the podcast. <laughs> um, getting a little late. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they do essentially just look like supportive halter shirts almost. The third looks like a modern bra. It's got straps and cups and a back band. And then the fourth looks like a 50s style bra, one that extends low on the rib cage, um, I guess for some extra support. But the really cool thing about all of this is they're Pretty. I mean, if you look at the picture of a of uh, the one that they're really showing off, it does look like a bra. But as much as it has been destroyed over the years, <laughs> it's pretty. You know, yeah, you it's can not tell pristine, but there was it has little lace details on it. Yeah. It's not just this um, utilitarian garment. You yeah. Know? Well, and there has been some discussion about whether or not about the its actual use, mm-hmm. whether it was a functional foundation garment or if it was more of a boudoir garment Mm -hmm. which brings up a whole nest of other questions of like (laughs) you never think about you know kind of that sort of titillating approach to fashion going on so much in that era even though i'm sure it must have been on some level i mean we got here everyone has wanted to please a partner at some (laughs) point in time since history began um but yeah so there is a lot of debate over the actual um, purpose of that garment and why would they make it so? Pr- well, we make pretty undergarments that no one is ever meant to see, or at most, you know, our closest 
family members. So it's kind of fascinating from that perspective. It is. And um, it's just a little a little peek into fashion from hundreds of years ago and also such an eye-opener, too, for, for folks who assumed that the bra was something that didn't develop until way, way after this, that the bra had to have come after the corset. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's if you look it up online or even in many books, the history of the bra usually starts in 1913 with Mary Phelps Jacob, who is a, a socialite who found that those bias-cut garments that I was talking about earlier her corset messed up the line of it. Like Mm -hmm. you could see the bones sticking out and she didn't find it pleasing and that she and her maid concocted what was the first bra out of two handkerchiefs and some ribbon. I have some theories. (laughs) We actually did a bra episode on pop stuff and I kind of went off on my, I bet the servant did all the work. (laughs) She took all the credit. I don't, she was probably a lovely girl. Um, but, But that's where we normally mark the, the start of the modern brassiere, because even though there were various forms, that was the first one that was patented. Mm-hmm. And then she sold that patent and it took off as an industry. Well, and um, we had been, I think a, a listener had recommended this article, this BBC history article, where this news came out mm-hmm. about the bra fine to um, to our podcast and then also to mom stuff yeah. because clearly they're going to be interested in this news too. And yeah. and I forwarded the article onto you. Y'all are just going to think I send Holly articles. All underwear <laughs> articles. <laughs> any, any historical underwear. Yeah. Um, but but I, it is something I'm fascinated with, which you knew. I did. So I, I forwarded it onto you and I remember your response to that too. And it was at first, you know, I saw the subject line and I was just ready to dismiss it. I was thinking, oh, surely it'll be some modified corset or bandeau. And yeah. you were like, it really looks, this looks like a bra. Yeah. Um, so I think everybody might need to go check out that picture now. So. It is. It's very eye-opening because it looks exactly it looks like, like a bra, bra you would buy now. It you just like time traveled back. a bra that went through the dryer. <laughs> <laughs> like 32,000 times. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then your dog chewed on it a little bit. That's yeah. how you could recreate your own historical garment. Your own historical garment. Um yeah, it's so fascinating. And I, I, you know, the, I'm always fascinated by all of this from both the fashion standpoint and the development and evolution of fashion. I mean, there's so many things we could still talk about because I'm such an information junkie about it. But I, I just think sociologically, it's really fascinating how people have treated their bodies through time in the interest of fashion. Yeah. And I think people deciding to accept or reject fashions that, are either clearly uncomfortable or weird <laughs> is, is really neat too. So, so um, the idea that women would accept the S-shaped corset, you know, yeah, is the epitome of beauty. But then, <laughs> which is killing, rebel them. against it too. Yeah. Eventually, I'm not going to wear something like that anymore. And and you really do get into that more in the teens and twenties. Yeah. Um, but then it goes back too with Christian Dior's new look. I mean, we've got to at least mention that for a second. Yeah. Sort of a, a return to a corseted look, and a lot of women really didn't like that. That that was the direction style was heading back in. There were protests yeah. over over that look, but also a, a mass exception uh, or acceptance of it rather yeah. too. Um, something so different from the boxy war rationing styles that yeah. had that had come immediately before. So ha- what fashions work, what, what ones don't, when people decide to accept it, when they see those 
um, pantalettes in 1805 <laughs> and are like, I cannot imagine wearing those. But then their daughters wear them a generation later. Yeah. It's really neat to me to think about all that. Yeah. And I mean, corsets are so fascinating, I think, to people today because people still wear them. I mean, they're fetishized in some cases, but also just... As a fashion garment, they've moved outside. They're in, I mean, yeah, they, they we'll aren't see whole bridal parties that are in beautifully, you know, made corsets. And I, that's sort of how I became fascinated with them, was seeing, like, these really beautiful, fascinating costume pieces and going, oh, that's really, ooh, where do they, hmm, I should learn how to make those. And that's how I ended up down the rabbit hole of, like, having this ridiculous library of books about the history of corsetry and Mm -hmm. how it's evolved. And I just, uh, there's a reason we're fascinated with underwear. I'm not (laughs) sure what that reason is even, but corsets, I think in particular really strike a chord with people because one, they tend to be divisive. Mm -hmm. Um, you either go, Oh yes, or that is crazy. And there's not a lot of in between. And two, I mean, there's just something fascinating about kind of taking control of your shape in that way that draws people into it. And we didn't even get into tight lacers, really. Like, the people that really do body modification through prolonged use of corsetry, um, which is a fascinating world in and of itself. Um, yeah, I, it, it's like the one garment that just makes people... Yeah, the undershirt is not having this effect on people. It doesn't have that same, no. <laughs> not like, oh, chemises, tell me all about them. <laughs> we got to incorporate those in outward fashion. Uh, yeah. All right, well... I'm going to make bloomers come back. You and me both are going to start wearing them under dresses. <laughs> pantalettes all the way. <laughs> yeah, pantalettes. <laughs> all right, Holly. Let's make this happen. You don't dangle that carrot. I will hold you to this. <laughs> I'm going to come into work in a couple of weeks, and there will be like a neatly folded oh, pair of pantalettes pair of <laughs> on, my, on my desk. I'm not sure what length dresses I would even have to wear with pantalettes, though. I'd have to get out my old prom dress or something. Just below the knee. Just below the knee for pantalettes. That might look like I was living in the Oneida commune or something. We're not going to go full length Bo Peep. We're going to go calf length on the pantalettes, just below the knee on the dress. (laughs) Then we're going to post pictures. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Okay, well... We'll all look forward to that. To the new fashion trends we yeah, start. Yeah, new trends. The new old trends. New historical trends. Totally doing it. Um, so if you guys want to share any other details about probably historical underwear or historic inspired <laughs> underwear, um, let us know. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History. And we are on Facebook. And I know that so many of our listeners sew and um, a lot of you guys are actually heard from costumers um, doing theatrical costume and cosplay stuff and I really hope that you guys enjoyed this especially and and share some of your own stories about um, trying to get that right look that Holly is talking about you can't just wear the dress you've got to have start from the inside out exactly so um, I don't know do we have any cool fashion related articles we actually have an article on how corsets work perfect yeah okay it's a little breezy it doesn't get into all of the stuff that we got into here but it covers all the basic points you should absolutely check that out yeah you can do that by searching for how corsets work on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 